Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 2002 film, Equilibrium. So this film takes place in a futuristic dystopian society. It's But it says the 21st century, so yes. it's 20-something-something. Yeah, they're fairly early in the 21st century because at the beginning when they're kind of giving you the backstory of how this dystopian mm-hmm. society was formed, what do you see footage of? World War the two, II. Yeah, World War II and the two bad guys are basically that they show are Stalin and Saddam Hussein, right? Yes. So... I guess it's supposed to be fairly recent, yes. or and early in the 21st yes, century. So World War Three happened, yes. and it was even more deadly, worse than the previous two world wars. And then there was a call to they realize the governments realize or they feel that the uh, biggest cause of this was emotions, and so the biggest thing to do is regulate human emotions, basically where we can't emote at all, so that way we can have world peace. And they do this through the drug called prosium. Yep. And basically, citizens have to take it at a certain time every day, and that suppresses their emotions. Anyone who d- refuses to take these drugs or rebels against this are are can be killed. They ha- the government has absolute authority to do whatever they want to them. Usually, just hunt them down and kill them. But there still is a resistance faction, and our main character is John Preston. He is a cleric. And he is the authority. They hunt down anybody who's found to be showing, having feelings or emotions, anybody with resistance and anything, whether it's art or literature or anything like that, that's deemed to cause emotions, to bring out emotions in people that is considered to be burned. Yeah. And it's so over the course, he, he stops taking these drugs eventually, and he starts feeling things. One of the resistance leaders, played by Emily Watson, he starts developing romantic feelings for her. He starts getting more curious. His partner, early on we see, uh, uh, also was not taking those drugs, and mm-hmm. he fell in love with Emily Watson first, and he, br- he keeps a book of poetry. And so eventually... He starts meeting with the resistance, Preston, and he starts questioning everything. And it leads to this big showdown where he goes to the father, who's the head of this government, and has to take them out to lead the resistance. And eventually, it gets he gets revealed that this big government politician is really the father. The father died a long time ago, and he's just been continuing it. It leads to a big showdown. He kills the father, and then the resistance rises up and they overthrow the government. So. It's interesting because if you look online at the reviews, Rotten Tomatoes, anything that just measures critics' reviews doesn't take into audience. It's pretty low. It's like at 41% on Rotten Tomatoes. But if you look at the Internet Movie Database, which combines both with Mm -hmm. audience, it's at a 7.4 out of 10. So it's one of those things where critics may not care for it, but it's got a lot of audience love. Yeah, and I'm kind of in the middle. I overall, if I had to go black and white, say did I like it or not, I would say I liked it, but it's not super high because it's such a mishmash of things that came before. It's a dystopian society, so yes, in 1984, Brave New World, and the one that really came out to me was Fahrenheit 451. A lot of these movie stories, so it's like. You see a lot of those movies in this one and yeah. books too. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and um, that's why I have to 
say I react to it about the same way. I liked the movie, but to draw an analogy, this movie is to The Matrix or 1984 or Brave New World. It is to those original pieces of work as Orca the Killer Whale is to Jaws. (laughs) Orca was kind of an enjoyable but goofy movie, right? Um, And this one is too. And you're right, it is kind of a mishmash of these different themes. uh, With, I guess, the main message being ironic. And again, not not uh, an original ironic message that uh, this uh, dystopian society that is attempting to prevent another World War III. And I guess this uh, this World War III nearly wiped humanity out and it was nuclear in nature, right? In order to prevent this, they're, they're dealing directly with they, what they believe directly is the cause of human aggression is emotion. So what do they do? For some reason, they, they, they uh, invent this system of self-administered doses of this drug. They call it prosium, but if, if you notice, the name of the society is called Libria. Mm-hmm. So I think they also had in mind Librium, yes, which is an antipsychotic drug, which is supposed to help with um, the violent uh, mood swings that occur with um, bipolar disorder, right? So I'm thinking they're thinking that as well. So they think the deadening of the emotions will prevent man's inhumanity to man, and they actually use that phraseology early in the movie. But lo and behold... When you attempt to do that, to deaden the emotions, to deaden the connections between people, what happens? The state that grows up around that idea in order to exert control um, actually ends up doing the very things it's trying to prevent, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. If it's not interstate warfare, it's certainly warfare of uh, this, this totalitarian government against its citizenry. And that's not an original message either. I mean, yeah. we see that in 1984. We see that uh, in in um, uh, Brave New World. So, but you know what? Even 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 realizing all this, I, I did like it. I th- mm-hmm. I, it was just it was it was entertainment. Yeah. There were parts of it that I found very funny. Because the whole of the gun kata thing, yeah, yeah, they have this, you know, the 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 the, the government system set up. It, it's called tetragrammaton. I thought that that was amusing because they're playing there with the notion of Big Brother and uh, the, the the totalitarian um, uh, idea of of a parental figure, you know, keeping care of you and tetragrammaton. Uh, if you don't know, is a reference to the four consonants that make up the name of Yahweh, tetra, four, grammaton, letters. Mm. And that's supposed to be uh, the name of God, right? And that's a big thing in the Bible. So they're calling themselves the system, tetragrammaton, and so literally taking on this, this godlike role with regard to everybody else in the society. And then you have kind of playing on that theme, this idea of these these guys that go out and, as it were, do the policing and dirty work. Um, they're called grammaton clerics, yes. right? And so they're a quasi-religious order that is also u- making use of martial arts, but it's martial arts <laughs> combined with guns. With guns. Yes. And so you have these 
I think, hilarious fight scenes where this one guy who's undergoing this transformation, what's his name? Um, John Preston. Preston. Yes. You know, he's played by like Christian Bale. Played by Christian Bale, who <laughs> I was thinking was going to do his Batman voice, but that never happened. No. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he's jumping around and doing all this Matrix kind of stuff, and he's shooting. He's literally killing 50, 60 guys. You know, the bad guys in this film are, are like the quintessence of bad guys that can't shoot straight. Yeah, they, the stormtrooper effect. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's hilarious. I, I found those parts funny. And in general, I found the the movie, it, it did its job in being entertaining and, and raising these questions to some extent. Because I think it's very important that... Uh, uh, that that message that uh, you know a, a project that attempts to to you know form this uh, uh, police state or this uh, ideal soldier via control of the emotions that has historical resonance because you see the kinds of horrors that can be visited upon human beings by people that are in a system that purposefully sets out to do that with its soldiers. Soviet Russia, Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan are great examples of this. They had extensive indoctrination, propaganda uh, systems, not only for their societies at large, but for their militaries that ultimately were quite successful in doing that. And I think, you know, if there's a deeper message to this film, it's certainly that. Yeah, and uh, one thing I would not levy a criticism against this movie is is that it's lazy i don't feel this movie was lazily made even if it is like oh i've seen this before i've seen that before one of the things uh researching this film i thought was interesting a lot of the locations they shot on many places were in germany like they one specifically was these one of the buildings they used for the 1936 olympics so that was something that was specifically built by the government during nazi germany yeah and they even uh was one place i don't remember exactly but they shot in italy and this structure that was built in italy was during mussolini's regime so it's that's a lot of thought putting into that even if it is a silly movie that it wasn't entirely with um just dumb yeah, yeah, and I agree with that. I mean, I, I think they actually did set out to create a kind of a combination of all of those famous dystopian stories yeah. and, and tell it in a unique way. And I, I, In the end, it does the job, and I can understand the more positive audience response in the 70s. And I can understand critics. You know, critics have read all the uh, many, many more books than the typical audience yeah, and seen many more the, films. And so they, they're going to be a little more jaundiced, you know? Yeah. A critic, yeah. His, his job is to see so many things. And when you've seen something, you, if, it, if it feels so derivative of something else, then you're likely to not take it as, you know, enjoy it as much as, say, an audience who may not see so many movies. To them, it might be something brilliant that they've never seen before with the critics like, oh, I've read this book, I've seen yeah. this movie, it's nothing new. Yeah. But um, one thing, because we talk about, I, it, he's talking, he said The Matrix, and I think it's true in some ways, but different in some. Like, as far as the story and the philosophical elements, it, it, that's completely different. Yes. Matrix is more about Plato's cave and right. all that. And the storyline is completely different. Matrix isn't dystopian. It's like post-apocalyptic practically. And But it's as far as style, 
Yeah. I think it definitely is because he's wearing yeah. that long trench coat, which looks a lot oh, like yeah. Neo. And the whole mixing this martial arts gun style yeah. is completely in the Matrix. And that's why I, my notes, I put the film suffers a little bit. I call it the Star Wars effect. Yeah. Because if you remember when the original Star Wars came out, nobody thought that movie was going to do anything. And it took everybody by storm, won all a bunch of awards, was the highest grossing film ever made. So every other studio that didn't make that was like, get me that. Like... I don't know if you remember a Disney movie called The Black Hole. Oh, yeah. Atrocious. They did that. They, they put, we, James Bond was like, we got to put James Bond in space because of Star Wars, so we're going to do Moonraker. Yeah. And then, you know, 20-something years later after that, you had The Matrix. Yeah. Nobody thought that movie was going to do any good. It was oh, yeah. huge, made a ton of money. Yep. Inspired everything after that. And this is one of them. So, like, oh, yeah. there's got to be a bit of studios going... That was big. Can you do something like that? You want to do a 1984s, but let's throw some guns in there. Let's yeah. get some shootouts, some action. And some slick back hair. Yeah. And some sunglasses. <laughs> and some sunglasses, right. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you can't blame them. They're trying mm-hmm. to cash in. Uh, and, and I guess I, I would say that it has a second message to it that I kind of like, too. And it was saying, look, it, it, there is a price to pay for uh, human culture hitting certain heights. And the basic idea was that um, um, the price you'd pay for those heights is kind of the negative side of the coin with human emotion. Yes, you get Leonardo da Vinci, for instance. They, they show mm-hmm. artworks of him, and, 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 they, and they show the people surreptitiously pocketing Poetry, you know, these um, grammaton clerics, you know. And ultimately, you even see that father, the guy that's posing as father, he doesn't take the drugs either. And he's living in a room that has all the appearances of these underground, literally underground rooms where people have remnants of human culture. Um, So our world has all of these things free and out in the open, but at a price in that uh, there's a dark side to humanity. And that dark side brings about murder, crime, war. And I, th- I think they did a fairly good yeah, job of, of conveying that. The talk, I think the, the leader of the resistance, he was telling him about how, you know, it's okay to have emotions, but you have to keep them in check. You can't let them run wild. You have, you know, there has to be that balance because if you do go too wild, where you're filled with anger or jealousy or hate, yeah, then you know, then that's how wars happen, yeah. But as long as you can control that, and that's the know. ideal, and you have to control it. And uh, I think part of the message of the movie is we always have to try, but ultimately, probably, if you're looking for this ideal utopian world, we're always going to fail. We're always going to have violence. We're always going to have warfare. And it's the price we pay for the other things, the other incredible things we do. Form systems of government that are basically just like the United States, right? Uh, Trips to the moon. Great works of art. I I like the scene where he plays Beethoven, parts of Beethoven's Ninth, and you, you see it really deeply affecting him. I mean, these are uniquely human things, incredible things. But like I said, I, th- I think the message of the film is ultimately, um, because we're not perfect, uh, it, it does come with that price, even as we should take his advice and try and control the negative parts of it. Uh, we'll ultimately always fail in that regard, though. Yes. 
in we were you know we've talked a bit of how it's derivative the one even because everybody's always because it's called you know it's a dystopian society and immediately when you say dystopian society the work of art that's everybody's going to say is 1984 the one i felt mm-hmm. that it's it, more so than anything else especially 1984 was fahrenheit 451 which is one of my all-time favorite books and because the story is, if for some reason you don't know, it's books are outlawed in this in the Fahrenheit 451 world. And the main character in that story, Guy Montag, is a quote-unquote fireman. He f- goes into these places, burns the house down, especially the books. Yeah. It, but he brings home a book one day, and then he starts. You know, he start. You know, he's because they ban the books because they say it causes people to think too much, causes too many things, and it can be you can cause trouble. Just like, you know, emotions in this story. Yeah. And then, but just like in that movie, he in this movie, he contacts the resistance. These people who were former professors, former whatever, and fighting against the government. And, but everybody, because he tries to read um, poetry to his wife, who's always very cold. And every, the relationships in this are very cold. Nobody really, even if they're married, they're just completely indifferent to everything. Yeah. And he... He reads some poetry to one of his wife's friends as they were over, and she she's moved to tears about how just terrible it is. Why do why do people want to think like this? Why does somebody want to be sad? But even in the end of that movie, he because the thing is also there's wars constantly going on, and everybody's indifferent to it because they only last a few like a few days. Mm-hmm. There's this war that the city's shelled out, but the resistance is on. But they have still have to burn books. So they just keep it in their heads, and everybody's in charge of a book. Like you want to talk to read, yep. you know, this person, yep. and that's what I was thinking of when watching this, especially because I, uh, it was kind of a bit predictable. It's like, okay, he's going to bring a book home with him. He's going to contact somebody from the resistance. He's going to be moved by this literature or this yes. art, just like yes. Fahrenheit yes. One. And again, I think that's an indicator. I, the, the filmmakers know knew what they were doing. Yes. Um, yeah, definitely. It definitely brings up another kind of related theme a little bit. Um, when I was watching it, I was thinking about that direction of Fahrenheit 451. I was thinking along those lines, too. And, and you know, the idea that there's danger in literature and art because it will lead us down paths we shouldn't take is, believe it or not, old. And it has... A, uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, a very respectable pedigree in the history of philosophy. Plato had very cautious views about art, and he actually wanted to uh, censor art because some forms of art, particularly certain tragedies and certain myths in the Greek mythology, portrayed ways of life he thought were ill-advised for individuals, individuals and for society. So he was quite willing to do that kind of censorship and book burning, at least in his ideal society that he describes in the Republic. So uh, you can you can kind of, it's, it's very worrying when you read that, considering the, the, the amount of great literature he generated and the fact that uh, his mentor, Socrates, was killed for generating dangerous ideas you'd you'd think he wouldn't do this but he did and i think again i think it's a testament uh, to the power of art and literature that it can be seen as so dangerous 
especially when we're talking about books, it can sort of provide change. I'm thinking of Uncle Tom's Cabin. I'm thinking Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. You've seen literature inspire changes in government or just in everyday society. Yeah. And again, uh, uh, on the on the flip side of that, you can see literature that has inspired terrible things. If you want to call it a piece of literature, Hitler's Mein Kampf is a good example mm-hmm. of that. Uh, there were were and are writings that inspired Soviet atrocities, um, Japanese atrocities during World War II. So again, you get that double sided coin, you know. And then just people who take readings the wrong way. I'm thinking of Mark David Chapman, who was inspired by Catcher in the Rye, and then he went on yeah. to kill John Lennon. Now, the Catcher in the Rye is not encouraging people to commit murder, but yeah. that's what he read that, and that inspired him to do yeah, that. Yeah, exactly right. And we've made, I th- at least in the Western world, we've we've made a, a a calculation that all things considered, the benefits render it excusable to allow those negative things to occur. We're willing to pay that price. Other societies haven't done so. Again, the Soviet system is a case in point. Nazi Germany is a case in point. Imperial Japan, another case in point, um, where they put strict controls on uh, literary output, art. art. And um, ultimately, you see that in every one of those cases, the society or the culture as a whole, whole uh, did not reach the heights that more open societies reach, even with their faults and with those negatives that they uh, have calculatingly allowed. Because it's going back to this thing with the prosium. Because when you think of 1984, the, the slogan is Big Brother is watching you. But in this society, they're not watching it. Yeah. I, I read an interview because the director said he kind of shied, even though it takes place in the future, he wanted to shy away from showing any kind of futuristic technology because he says if people are watching this 10, 15 years later after it comes out, it's going to look incredibly outdated. Yeah. Which, you know, he doesn't rely too much on special effects in this movie. There's a couple of CGI shots which don't look particularly good. Yeah. But for the most part, he shies away from that. It's all production design and sets and everything. Well, one of the thing is, I'm asking, they're, are they just, re- just you know, taking everybody at their word that they're taking these drugs? Because there's no surveillance, because it's revealed that his son, because we forgot to mention Preston had a wife yeah. who was found to emote and she was executed by the government yeah. and that inspired the son and the daughter to just stop taking it altogether yeah so and this he's is not, he's not taking it they're not taking it yep. but nobody's really coming for them nobody can't come for the son at the end nobody comes for the daughter so i'm just like are you so if somebody says you know what i'm gonna I, i'm curious i'm not gonna take this tonight today i want to see how it feels or because we the yeah. whole thing he accidentally knocks over his vial in yeah. the beginning so he can't take it so if that happens does the government have any power to stop it i mean i thought there would be surveillance cameras yeah. everywhere yeah but no. there isn't it really sticks out like a sore thumb for me when 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 he takes he finds he can take the mirror off the wall in the bathroom and then put those capsules mm-hmm. in there as he skips his doses you know mm-hmm. my, my first thought was immediately well why aren't there cameras in the mirror or something yeah. Exactly. Maybe maybe the reason is, again, this is only a fictional society, but again, they may, may have been thinking of real-world real parallels. Maybe the reason is because they've managed to indoctrinate and propagandize the population to such an extent 
that they don't need to use the technology. Good point. And everybody watches each other, you know, as happened in Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia in particular. But But you're right. If it's a government, this government's obsessed with control. Yeah. Wouldn't they just not leave that to chance and just say, let's just watch them anyway? Yeah, I I would think so. Especially this is a futuristic technology. So I'm thinking that would be available. Like, say, if Nazi Germany took place in 2030 instead of 1930, they would be using that technology. Well, China's using it right now, looking at their own populace. Um, I think they certainly would. And that's another glaring weakness of this film. There are just certain things that really stick out like sore thumbs. You're going, come on, this is not plausible. And that's one of those things, I think, that isn't plausible. Uh, But, you know what, getting back to your... uh, just your observations about how carefully they constructed it so it wouldn't look too outdated. I think they've done a pretty good job with that. The only thing that I noticed that didn't seem to have placed it in its time, you know, early 2000s, right? When, when this 2002. Was 2002. Um, the monitors he's using as he's watching video and th- things, uh, it's, it's a good old-fashioned cathode ray tube television. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, no flat screens in this world. No, not at all. Um, but yeah, I think if the technology was available, just like uh, uh, communist China, they'd certainly be using it. Um, uh, but again, this is 2005, and believe it or not, the internet was in a kind of infancy at that point, I guess you could say, so yeah. they hadn't thought of it. Although by that time, China had been well underway in monitoring its people's use of the internet and censoring the internet there's famous pictures from that time period of screenshots right of search visual you know when you do an image search uh image search results for tiananmen square you've seen that right yeah, and nothing or just like people it's in the flowers and, yeah. and kites and happy times no tanks nothing no no people being killed nothing like that so they were well on their way to doing that this society allegedly in the early 21st century somewhere if they had that technology, yeah, they would definitely use it. All right. So getting close to the end of my questions here, is there anything else we should bring up or talk about? Nothing I can think of. Okay, I do do want to bring up the review for Roger Ebert. Now, we talked about how the critical review for this overall was not very good, but he was one of the critics who gave it who gave it a thumbs up. He gave it a three out of four. So I, do, I just want to read it because it's funny, but he also makes some good points. Yeah. He says, Equilibrium would be a mindless action picture, except that it has a mind. It doesn't do a lot of deep thinking, but unlike many futuristic combos of sci-fi and FX, it does make a statement. Freedom of opinion is a threat to totalitarian systems. Dictatorships of both the left and right are frightened by the idea of their citizens thinking too much or having too much fun. The movie deals with this notion in the most effective way by burying it in the story and almost drowning it with entertainment. In a free society, many, most audience members will hardly notice the message. But there are nations and religions that would find this movie dangerous. You know who you are. The movie is set in the 21st century. Hey, that's our century. At a time after the Third World War. That war was caused by citizens because citizens felt too much and too deeply. They got all worked up and started bombing each other. <laughs> to assure world peace and the survival of the human race, everyone has been put on obligatory doses of prosium, a drug that dampens the emotions and shuts down our sensual side. Hint, the working title of this movie was Librium. In the movie, enforcers are known as clerics, have the mandate to murder those who are considered sense offenders. This is a rich irony since true believers, not free thinkers, are the ones eager to go to war over their beliefs. Mm -hmm. If you believe you have the right to kill someone because of your theology, you're going about God's work in your way, not his. 
If Equilibrium has a plot borrowed from 1984, Brave New World, and other dystopian novels, it has gunfights and martial arts borrowed from the latest advances in special effects. More rounds of ammunition are expended in this film than any film I can remember, and I remember The Transporter. <laughs> I learned from Nick Nuzita at chud.com that the form of battle used in this movie is gunkata, which is a martial art completely based around guns. The fighters transcribe the usual arcs in midair and do impossible acrobatics, but mostly use guns instead of fists and feet. That would seem to be cheating. It involves <laughs> a lot of extra work, and it's much easier to shoot someone without doing a backflip. <laughs> what I like is the sneaky, sneaky way Kurt Wimmer, director's movie, advances its philosophy in between gun battles. It argues, if I am correct, that it is good to feel passion and lust, to love people and desire them, and to experience many pleasures through great works of music and art. One is tempted to look benevolently upon equilibrium and assume thought control can't happen here. But of course it can, which is why it's useful to have an action picture in which the sense offenders are the good guys. Well said, because he, he likes it, and I, I kind of agree with him. Like I said, there's just some stuff in there that is really silly and ridiculous, yeah. but he, it's, it is attempting at something. And you know, when you in this day and age, when you have mindless sci-fi, and there's a lot of them out there, it's even if it's something derivative, I give the film a pass overall. Yeah. Not a super high recommend. No. This is not Blade Runner 2049, but it's still okay. Yeah, I, I thoroughly agree with that. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale, where you can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, for each episode I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at soundofcinema.automatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Saying so long, and be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies. Music